0: Hey, if you got a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 7 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can always bring a Bible. If you can't afford a Bible, you can grab a Bible. we got some in the back. That is our gift to you. We want to make sure everyone always has a Bible, so feel free to take it if you need it. We're in a series entitled Jesus Loves You, and Jesus does... He loves you. He loves you a lot, in fact. He really, really loves you. And so we want to make that so clear that over the next six weeks, we're going to talk about, I guess this is week two of six, six encounters that Jesus has with different people and how it shows us a different element of Christ's love, how it proves his love to us, how it reminds us of his love. Last week, I preached through what is probably the most famous verse of the Bible, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we Preach that verse within its context in John chapter 3, helping us to understand what is God's love. And when we say Jesus loves you, what does that really mean? If you missed that sermon, I would encourage you to go back to listen to it on podcast or YouTube as it was kind of a setup for the entire series. In that story, we saw the story of Nicodemus, who's a male religious Jewish leader who approaches Christ at night. Today, we're going to look at a complete opposite. Many people think that the woman in the story here is actually a Gentile. Uh, Whether she's a Gentile or a Jew, we don't know for sure. But perhaps she's a Gentile. According to some, she is. She's a woman, and she is labeled in the text multiple times as a sinner. Certainly not a religious leader. And she does not approach Christ at night. Instead, she approaches Christ uh, right in the middle of the day, right in the middle of a party interjecting herself into a scene or an environment which she really doesn't belong. So this is a much different encounter. Now, in these encounters, we're seeing a a fact in the statement, Jesus loves you, that he loves you, that you being whoever you are, that Jesus' love crosses social structures, that it doesn't always make sense whom Christ would love in our finite minds, but Christ in his infinite love loves people across every era, across every culture, across every little circle that we would create in our own human world and minds. In this story today, we're going to look at it through three of the maybe most generic sermon points you have ever heard in your life. We're going to look at it through three words, pride, love, and peace. Pride, Love and peace. Again, the most generic sermon ever. But in this, we'll see how pride stops us from the gospel, how love responds to the gospel, and how when the gospel breaks in, we then get to walk in peace. And so we'll see that all in the story here this morning. I want to first set up the context of the story. In the story, I'll just read the first verse as a way to help that. One of the Pharisees, uh, this guy's name is Simon, we learn that later in the story, asked him, the him there is Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And so uh, the, the context of the story is this. Simon invites Jesus into his house, and this was not an uncommon thing to do. Jesus is a teacher who is rising in popularity and notoriety, and so to invite the up-and-coming rabbi or the popular rabbi to your table was not an uncommon thing for the Pharisee to do. Now, you might ask the question, but why would Jesus go? Aren't these the same guys that kill him? Yes, they are. A few years later, they do. This group of people, the Pharisees, kill Jesus. But we're seeing, in Jesus says, Uh, acceptance of the invitation, that he really does love everybody. He loves the Pharisee, and he loves the sinner. He loves Nicodemus, who comes to him at night. He loves the Pharisee, who invites him to his table, and treats him with a a, a level of disrespect. See, in the the way these parties would play out, the, the host of the party would invite the guest, and particularly the guest of honor in a culture that highly elevated hospitality, there would have been certain things that the host should have done to Jesus, which he does not do. They're explained later in the text. Now, this is how the story should have played out. Simon should have invited Jesus into the story, in, uh, sorry, into his home uh, for this meal. And the first thing he would have done is a servant would have washed Jesus' feet. Then the host particularly to the guest of honor, would have greeted the the guest of honor with a a kiss of fellowship on the cheek. It was a sign of, hey, I like you. It was a sign of, you are welcomed into my home. It, It was a sense of community and connection. Then, if the guest or the host wanted to go above and beyond, he would give some olive oil, and the oil would serve for, uh, you know, cleanliness purposes, for scent purposes, uh, and that would have been the next thing. He would have bestowed that upon the guest, particularly, again, the guest of honor. After that, uh, this is very modern, he would have been served a flight of coffee, okay? So you go into any cool coffee shop right now. So don't go into any coffee shops right now because it's Coffee Quest and the lines are out the door, okay? But if you go into any modern coffee shop right now, there's a flight of coffee you can order, right? And so this is kind of what would have happened. And so he would have sat down and they would have put out the little wood you know, table and they got their flight of coffee. And the first cup of coffee was a bitter coffee, okay? And so you would drink the bitter coffee. And as you drank the bitter coffee, it would remind you of all of the bitterness of life the darkness of life, the hurt, the pain. That you would experience, and then after that, you were done with that. You would drink uh, another cup of coffee, okay. And this would be like a sweet coffee, okay. This was your mocha. And so then you would grab your sweet coffee and you would drink the sweet coffee. And what that was doing is it was setting a, a taste in your mouth for what you were about to experience the sweetness of fellowship, the sweetness of good conversation, and good and a good meal in the presence of friends. And this guy. Doesn't do any of this. I mean, what kind of guest doesn't, or host doesn't serve coffee? What kind of church doesn't serve coffee, right? Some of you will get that later. Now, after all of this has played out, right, or not played out, Jesus still shows up. He's still there. He's still kind to the man. He's been greatly disrespected. And he's there just reclining at the table, now, as we work our way through the story, and some of what I've already worked in, we see our first point, and that is the pride of the Pharisee, and the pride of the Pharisee kind of plays itself out in a few different ways. The first way is in how the Pharisee views himself, and you can read it into the story. The Pharisee almost he has this like this tone of uh, of Jesus, you need me as much as I need you. This is my party. I invited you into my table, into my story. Twice the text reminds us that it was the Pharisee who invited Jesus. You get this picture from the story, both by what the Pharisee says and how he responds to Jesus, that uh, he, he still thinks that the whole story is revolving around him, that he's the main character of the story. And religious pride has this tendency to do the same thing, to still make the story about us. Sometimes we cloak it in religious language. I'm going to call this a proximity gospel. You've heard of the prosperity gospel. You've heard of the poverty gospel. Probably both are heresies. But the proximity gospel is I get just close enough to God. I get close enough to Christ. Just, just close enough, but not close enough to let him really break in. The proximity gospel. And this is what the Pharisee is kind of practicing. Well, let Jesus come in, and he will call him a rabbi, but he won't call him a prophet. He will remind Jesus that, that you, you are in my world. This is another way that the, the Pharisee shows pride. His terms of engagement with Christ are this. You come when I beckon you. You step into my table where I am boss and I am head. Now, this is one way to practice religion where we beckon Christ to come to us when we want him, when we want to show him off, when we want to look good or appear popular, when we want to have a table of people and we need some entertainment, we bring Jesus in. When we need him for a moment, we let him come in, but we tell him, hey, remember, I invited you. Don't do anything crazy. Don't challenge me to change too much. Don't call me to too much. I invited you. So. Pharisee shows his pride in that way. The Pharisee also shows his pride in the way he thinks about and talks about someone whom Jesus loves. Often in this story, the Pharisee is going to bring up the sinner, the, the sin of the woman, never in himself acknowledging anything wrong with himself, but always being quick to point out what is wrong with her, who she is. In fact, there's this one point in the story where the Pharisee actually thinks to himself. This is a cool magic trick that Jesus plays. The Pharisee, it says, is thinking to himself, oh, if Jesus were really a prophet, he would know what this, uh, who this woman was, what type of woman she was, and he would never let her touch him. He's alluding, by the way, to a verse in Isaiah 65 where it says that the prophet does not let the sinner touch them. Get away from me, sinner. And so his view of the woman is the view that religion often plays, which is uh, I, I must create a circle of safety around me, a, a circle, a barrier of entry so that all those who are not acceptable, all those who, who I ought not let close, they stay out there on the outside. They, I don't let them break into my barrier. Not those types. A few years ago, I was, a few years ago, it was probably about 12 years ago now, over a decade, I think I was 22 or 23, I was on vacation one weekend, uh, and you know, in church world. When you work at a church, you don't, you don't take a lot of Sundays off, uh, but this was one particular Sunday that I had taken off, and I was down in West Virginia, and I, I still wanted to go to church that morning, so I, I drove around the, the holler, that's what they call them, and I was driving around looking for a church to go to, and so I went to the biggest one in the area, and I remember rolling in, and I, I walked in, and I, and I sat down, and you know, I don't get to do this very often, just be a person at church, and so I sit down, and, and worship is going on, and I'm, and I'm watching worship play out, and the only way I could describe, particularly the men in the crowd during this worship, was just dead faced. I mean, looked like Cleveland Browns fans after a game, right? Just n- nothing, right? No possibility for joy. And there they all stood, and, and mercifully, worship ended, right? At some point, and and the pastor got up, and I don't know this pastor, and I don't know the whole context of this story, but I can only just communicate with you, and I would not make this on an indictment on a person. I would just share the story as an example of of what I saw that day, and um, he got up, and he said, I want to share a story about something that happened in our revival service last week, and uh, and I want to tell you about this little girl that came, but before I tell you about this little girl, let me tell you about this little girl's mom. This little girl's mom is the type of woman we would never want in our church type of woman that if she came, we would ask her to leave. And in my cynical 22-year head, I was like, oh, then she must be a heretic, because according to Scripture, that's the only person that you shouldn't give a platform to, so that must be what he's talking about. I don't think that's what he's talking about. See, religion has this tendency to build this barrier, this barrier of, like, cleanliness or perceived cleanliness. Don't let the dirty in. And this was the Pharisee's pride. It's how he viewed her. It's how he viewed himself. It's his terms of engagement with Christ. I beckon you. You don't beckon me, right? His pride. Jesus wanted to tell a story to help the Pharisee understand his own pride. And so within the story, Jesus tells a story to help the Pharisee understand what was really happening in his own home, and he seems very blind to it all. And so he tells a story, and the story's like this: Imagine there was a money lender, and the uh, the money lender, uh, there were two people who owed him a great debt. And one owed, uh, he uses the word, the number fifty, uh, and the other owes five hundred, and 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 these are good chunks of money. And then the money lender decides to just cancel all of the debt. Neither one of them could pay, and he would say, uh, uh, Simon, who would be more grateful—the one who had the little debt or the one who had the massive debt? And Simon goes, well, I suppose, Jesus, I guess, the one with the larger debt. And, and, and in the story, it's like you get this idea, uh, and you can even see the pronouns that Jesus uses throughout the story, that, that Simon clearly is the one who perceives himself, or uh, maybe even actually, like if you're, if you're looking at the scope of sin, has a lesser debt, And it's like the idea that that Simon seems to have is my debt is small and what I owe, I can probably pay myself. And so Jesus tells this story to try to help Simon understand what's going on. The illusion then also is that the woman has this massive debt. I'll talk about her in a second under my other heading. But Jesus is like, Simon, you your perception of yourself is you owe a, a small debt. And let me tell you, those who owe a small debt will end up loving little. Let me tell the story a little different way. Okay. Uh this is these are hundred dollar bills. Um one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Anyone? Oh, Jacob. Okay, you're a college student. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Okay. Yeah. Um so there's yeah, there's ten of them. And there's some of you in this room, this isn't a bad thing, there's some of you in this room who I could say, hey, you want the thousand bucks? Or I could just come up and I could give you the thousand bucks, right? And you'd go, thanks. Like, I, I, don't, I don't really need it, but, but like, I understand that, that it was yours and then you gave it to me. And uh, so thanks. Like, that's, that's really nice of you. And then you might walk out and you be like, "What do you want to do?" Like, I, I don't know. The dog needs new shoes. Like, we could, we could, we could do that, right? And there's others of you in here who who like, "Hey, you know, here's here's a thousand bucks," and, and you would go, "Wow." Like there was this thing I wanted to do, and I didn't know how long it was going to take me to get there. But now that you've given it to me, that's actually going to get me there a little bit closer. And so I'm, I'm appreciative uh, of the thousand dollars. Like, I, like I might even tell somebody, like, hey, somebody gave me a thousand bucks, and that was, that was really nice. Others you, the first group, like if I gave you the thousand dollars, you just, you wouldn't even tell anybody because it wouldn't come to, like even through your head to tell anyone because it's like it really didn't do that much for you. In the middle group though, you might tell a couple of people, like, dude, so Stephen gave me a thousand bucks, right? Like everyone says he's cheap, but he gave me a thousand bucks. Right? Oh, and then there's some of you here. Who if I gave you the thousand bucks, you would weep. You'd go, you have you have no idea what this means. You you don't know the weight of what I'm carrying, the questions that I'm asking. How am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do that? You have no clue how much I need this. And you would weep. And you would say something at the end, like this really changes everything. My whole outlook on life. And Jesus says, "That's that's like the gospel." Some of you, some of us, we think, "Oh, Jesus, you, you my sins are forgiven. Thank you." Like that cross, it probably wasn't fun, and and you did it, and I'm grateful, and uh, I, I I don't really need it, but thanks. Oh, and then there are others. Like the woman. And Jesus says, "Your sins are forgiven." And she weeps. You have no idea, Jesus. the weight of what I've been carrying. You have no idea the guilt that I've been feeling. this, this changes, this changes everything. And pride stops us from embracing the gospel. Love. Love is what happens then when we experience the gospel. See, there is a love. There's a gospel love that we experience, and then there's a gospel love that comes out. My second heading was love. And in the story, it's not believed that this is the woman's first encounter with Jesus. In fact, it's believed that she has already experienced the message of the gospel and that what she is doing now is an outcome of the love that she's already experienced. And let me first talk about what love is not. Love is not the absence of the acknowledgement of sin. Love is not ignoring that sin exists. Love is not downplaying the weight or the guilt or the disgustingness of sin. Love is fully acknowledging that sin is present and choosing to engage and embrace anyway. Oh, and this is what Christ does. Over and over in the text, even Jesus himself says, her sins which are many. And who are those sins against? Him, His Father. Love is fully acknowledging that sin exists and choosing to embrace the one who has sinned even when that sin was directly against the one who is extending the love, which is what Christ does. Now this love that Christ has shown to this woman It then plays out. And if you're ever wondering, like, how do I know if I'm the 50 or the 500, the two debt levels? How do I know if I'm the one who thinks they've been forgiven little or forgiven much? How do I know? How do I know which one? Let's look at the woman. She's experienced the love of the gospel. First, there is a humility to her. Her humility. Her humility in terms of engagement with Christ. They're not beckoning him to come to her. She runs to him. She hears where he's at. She does not care what is surrounding him. The walls of religion are surrounding Jesus, and she doesn't let it stop her. How many times do we hear in modern day, oh, yes, I I used to be a Christian. Oh, I used to go to church. Oh, I used to love Jesus. But I just know so many Christians who are so this and so many churches that are so this and so many churches that are messed up and all of this kind of stuff. And so I decided no. Ridiculous. 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 Oh, no, the heart that is changed by the gospel does not care if the walls of religion are surrounding Jesus. They will break those walls down to get to him. They will. And so the woman just, she doesn't care. There's a humility in how she approaches him. And the Pharisee may have repented for a sin every once in a while. Oh, I did this, and Lord, I am sorry. She doesn't repent for being, for... Having sinned, she repents for being a sinner. See how the view is different. She doesn't look in and say, oh, I messed up in this way. She looks in and goes, oh, I am messed up. I am a sinner. I have rejected you. Humility. She would dare never to call Jesus to her terms. She runs to him. Oh, and then she becomes, she becomes the host that Simon should have been. She runs up and she shows the affection that Simon should have shown. Because in love, in gospel love, there is an affection. She runs up, and, uh, and the first thing she does is she gets to his feet. And if you're wondering, like, I don't understand how this is all working out, remember, Jesus is reclining at table. So he's kind of like sitting down. Maybe he's like doing this or something like this. And his feet would be behind him, right? As he's laying at the table. Okay, like we don't, like we have chairs. So this, this is how they did it. And she runs up. And by the way, she doesn't have to demand her rights to sit at the table. Okay? She doesn't have to make a big, like, patriarchal debate on how bad the Pharisees are. No, she just runs to Jesus. And she gets, she's at his feet. And then it says that she is weeping, weeping. And for some of you, the the idea of emotion and response to the gospel is foreign to you. It might be the Pharisee in the story, if emotion and the gospel seem like two very foreign things. And she runs to the feet of Christ, and it says she's weeping. This is not. This is not like a little tear, okay. This is an all-out wail. She is, she is screaming, like gut wrenching, heart wrenching, like like ugly crying, like, and their tears are just falling, falling. And by the way, this is all in the presence of religion. It's all in the presence of her neighbors. It's all in the presence of Simon, and everyone's just kind of like you get the picture from the story that everyone's just kind of watching, like, You're almost done. He was, he was talking and she is just weeping and the, and the, the tears are covering Jesus' feet and, and then she takes her hair and one commentator said that, that the hair that is her glory, she lays at his feet. She cleans his feet. She pours the expensive ointment. Talk about that in a second on his feet. And then she just begins to kiss his feet. Oh, there's affection for Jesus in the gospel. There's a place where we don't just talk about him as like a friend. We don't talk about him like some distant thing. We don't talk about him like some dead religion. We talk about him with affection. I love him. I love him. And he weeps, she weeps and she cleans it kisses his feet she pours the ointment down and simon the pharisee kind of gets to this place and he's like okay enough <laughs> enough i forgot a point she showed up ready to worship by the way because another sign that you've received gospel love is there's 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 worship and sacrifice and the alabaster flask of ointment whether she was rich or not it was still an expensive outpouring in fact what you could see into the story is that she was willing to worship at a level and sacrifice at a level that religion never will see religion will look at certain sacrifices to god and go i don't get that one. Oh, but in the gospel it makes all the science in the world because in the gospel, when you have wept like she has wept, when you have experienced love like she has experienced, I mean, what she is doing in that moment is a complete social, emotional, relational, financial abandonment, completely abandoned of all of the, the, the tradition, all of like uh, trying to maintain her, uh, her, her composure and just laying it at his feet. And religion will never get you to that place. Ever. Ever. Oh, she worships. It was at this point then when, when Simon says, okay, okay, that's, that's, that's kind of enough. <laughs> and then that's when Jesus tells the story about the money and the debtors, given the clear implication that this woman owed much. She had sinned much and she had been forgiven much. And so she had experienced the gospel much. And so she had poured out much love. And then Jesus responds to this in three ways. And these three ways, I think, are true post our experience of the gospel, but I think they're also true during our experience of the gospel. The first thing that Jesus says to the the Pharisee is Hey, do you see her? Do you see her? of course he sees her. What is he asking? He said, do you see her the way I see her? I know how you, through your religious eyes, see her, but do you see her like I see her? And when we say Jesus loves you, the first thing we're saying is he sees you. He sees you. He sees you in a way that religion can't. And yes, he sees the sin. He sees it all. This is the power of God's love. This is the power of Christ's love that he sees into the woman. He sees all of the sin. He sees all of the past. He sees all of the dirtiness and he still lets her in. Still lets her weep at his feet. And later in the story, Jesus doesn't just see her. Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. He saves her. Now in that moment, we know that her faith in what Christ would do is what saved her, but on this side of the cross, how are our sins forgiven? Oh, by Christ being loved to us. See, Christ humbled himself just like this woman did, but he didn't humble himself just by 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 weeping at the, the feet of another no he humbled himself by going to the cross taking on all of the the weeping and the wailing and the mourning on himself on the cross he humbled himself for us he was affectionate for you on the cross he gave the greatest act of worship on the cross so he saves us. See, so one of the things that this, this story like so most obviously is missing is like a good host. Like, that, 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 like you read it and you're like, like that, that, like the whole story is just like screaming, like it's missing. I was like, like you have this Pharisee who Jesus affirms his righteousness and, and almost his good behavior. And then you have this woman and, and Jesus clearly is affirming her love and, and affirming her humility and her affection. And so it's like, okay, we've got this and we've got this. And it's like, what we're missing is somebody who is both humble, like the woman, righteous, like the Pharisee, but a good host. A few stories later, Jesus would host a party and in would walk his disciples and what would he do? Exactly like the woman. He would get down on his knees and he would wash their feet, humbling himself before him. One day, there's another feast that people will get invited to and Jesus will be at the head of the table and everyone will be invited to it. Who believes in His name? No one will have to stand on the outside. No one who believes in his name will have to just stand on the outside, wondering if they're good enough to sit at the table. He'll invite them all to the table. and what will and how will they have gotten there? Because Christ will have drank the bitter coffee of death. Ah, but Christ will have delivered the sweet coffee of resurrection. You all have poured it out and those who believe in his name will be invited to that. The last thing Jesus does, he sees us, he saves us from our sin. The last thing he does is he sets us free. And so he looks at the woman and he tells her, this is His salutation to her, go in peace Go in peace. Now, the context of the story is we understand what Jesus means by go in peace. I, I believe it is threefold. The, the first way that Jesus is telling her, go in peace. And remember, we believe that this woman has already experienced her salvation, but Christ has reiterated to her those four words, your sins are forgiven. Why? And then he says, go in peace. I think the first type of peace that, that he is talking about, this gospel, you've experienced the gospel. Now, go in peace. And the first peace is an inner peace. Paul would say it this way, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He's looking at her and he's saying, woman, 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 I know that religion is still labeling you by your sin, but go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation. You can weep again if you want, but you don't need to weep again. Your sins are forgiven. And she has experienced the gospel in such a way of being able to say, you don't know what this means. Like, 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 this changes everything. I've always been labeled this way. I've always been defined by these things that I've done. I've always carried the weight and the shame of my past. And you have said, your sins are forgiven. Now walk in peace. You don't have to carry it anymore. Go in peace, friend. Your sins are forgiven. They're forgiven. Go in peace. And go in peace is also then a a relational instruction. Go in peace. And I believe the relational instruction in this is, 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 is it's this encouragement to the woman to now walk in the gospel love that she has experienced. Go in peace. Go in peace. Carry this gospel love with you. Said another way, do not become the very thing that you might despise, the Pharisee. Ah, oh, the saddest of trajectories in the Christian life is when we enter like the woman, but then walk like the Pharisee. We feel the weight of the gospel; it brings us to our knees, and it fills our eyes with tears. But then we keep walking. And we forget that moment. And we become the Pharisee. We become the judgmental one. We become the restrictor. We become the very one who used to make us feel on the out. And go in peace is then deal with those. Deal with all like Christ has dealt with you to the woman deal with all now go in peace carry this grace this gospel grace with you as you go go in peace carry this love with you as you you, you have like a tank full of, of grace fuel like use it a, a, as you interact with others go in peace bring peace and third go in peace go in peace with your heavenly Father go in peace with Christ himself how? James would say it this way, by remaining unstained to the passions of the world, the corruption of the flesh, go in peace, what? It's akin to what Jesus had said to another woman, go and sin no more, go in peace. May the grace of Christ, may the love of Christ, may it have so compelled you to change that you now walk no more in the sin that you once did. Why? Because love is not the absence or the absence of the acknowledgement of sin. Love is the transformative power to allow us to walk out of that sin once and for all. So go in peace. Go sin no more. Go in peace. For you, have you known this love? Have you known it? like this woman did. Maybe it is easy for you to look and to say, I don't know if my sins are that great. I certainly never did what she did. The standard pharisaical prayer was, dear God, thank you that I am not a Gentile nor a woman. That's what they would pray. In other words, thank you that I'm not one of those. If you find yourself in this realm, even closely, maybe just watch out for that prayer and begin to pray another one. Lord, help me to understand the depth of your love for me better. Maybe you will never weep over the gospel. I hope you do. I don't think you have to have had the worst of past to weep over it. I think you just need a clarity in how big your debt actually was. How desperate your state without him actually is. Maybe ask him for that clarity. And then, for all of us, i got seven words for you. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for carrying the weight. Thank you for lifting the shame. Thank you for taking on the bondage. Thank you that religion, or anyone, can never label me, or anyone in this room anymore by what has occurred in the past, we are now redefined and relabeled by Christ, given a new identity. Oh, Father, help us to respond with humility, affection, and worship. And Father, I pray that you would help every one of us in here to walk in the peace that your gospel has secured for us. Inner peace, our sins are forgiven. Relational peace, I respond to you, not as you have responded to me, but as Christ has responded to me. Oh, in peace with you. To hate sin as you did and to walk in freedom from it. We need your spirit's help. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.